The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. Uh, here we are in 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 17. This is what the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine for your stomach and for your frequent illnesses. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Well, it's hard to believe that it's already November. Uh, This year has flown by. It's a time of the year that really makes us start to think about all those great holidays uh, that are going to be coming up soon. It's time to start preparing your body for the fourth Thursday of the month. Uh, It is time to start taking out those Christmas CDs or maybe start uh, uh, curating those Spotify playlists for the holidays. I've been playing those those, uh, uh, playlists since before Halloween, and I have been uh, already sort of indulging myself in the Hallmark Channel and those great Hallmark Christmas movies. And uh, I know that some of you who are giggling have done that too, It's never too early for those Christmas movies. Maybe it's time to put in the requests at work to have those days off uh, during the holidays. It's time to uh, take out the calendar and plan those get-togethers with friends and with family that maybe we haven't seen for a while because of the pandemic. And with all those uh, traditions that happen uh, every single year during this time, there's one tradition that I am absolutely certain will happen. Well, I wouldn't necessarily call it a tradition, I would call it an inevitable reminder of the reality of some people. And they usually come in an email or they come up in an article that I, that I happen to stumble across. Uh, they come from both Christian and secular sources. And what are they? They're how-to guides and how to survive the holidays. Namely, how to survive gatherings with family. It turns out that there are a ton of people that come from dysfunctional families or have people in their families that have uh, very strong, almost toxic personalities that are really hard to be around even for just a couple of hours, but yet people feel obligated to be around them because, well, they're family. And with the prevalence of these articles, it's really sad to see that a lot of people live in this sort of familial reality. And as we've gone through the the, uh, first letter of Paul to Timothy uh, since August, we've seen that many commentators look at this particular letter as a church manual or a manual for church order. 
and it is to a certain extent, but uh, what we've seen here in the last number of weeks is that it's not an operator's manual for a religious organization, but rather it's a roadmap for a functional, healthy church family. And that's how we are to look at it, as a church family. We are a family. And if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ from the moment that you believed, you were adopted by God into his family. And so the men and women that are all around you right now are your brothers and sisters in the Lord, regardless of how you feel about them. And the church is to be the kind of family in which you never need to do a Google search on how to survive family gatherings. As a family, the church is a family in which all the members are loved, they're cared for, they're valued, they're respected, they're protected, and so much more. Last week, we, we uh, got really practical and looked at how, as a functional, healthy family, we are to relate to each other uh, as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, and also we saw how we are obligated to take care of the most vulnerable among uh, our, our people. And Paul continues this discussion now of care in this passage uh, by focusing on how the church should care for uh, another set of, of family members, and that is those who are the leaders of the church, the elders. Now, back in September, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we saw what a church elder is and the kind of uh, man that he is supposed to be. An elder, very briefly, is an officially recognized leader of the church and is in his position because he meets various biblical qualities to lead, uh, along with a group of other elders, the local church of Jesus Christ. So contrary to its name, an elder is, is uh, not about age, but it's rather about maturity. And because of the seriousness of the role of the elder, there are four systems that Paul puts into place that our church and every other church ought to uh, employ. And the first one is, is that we need to honor elders. We need to honor the elders. Verses 17 and 18 says this, The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially for those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. So Paul goes straight out of the gate here with a, uh, with a strong case for why faithful elders should be what he calls doubly honored. Because he recognizes the unique challenges that come with church leadership. Uh, it is elders that are typically uh, involved in the lives of uh, the people that they've been entrusted to care for, and oftentimes that comes with shouldering the burden of people's dirty laundry. The, it is the elders who are expected to help guide and lead uh, the, the sheep, the, the flock of God, including the rebellious ones and including the ones who have, have ran away. It is the elders who are typically uh, taking care, uh, uh, that take the hits when they are unfairly accused of things, as we're going to see here in a moment. The elders have a unique spot in the schemes of the devil, 
It is the elders that have a direct target from the forces of demons and the forces of, of evil. Satan hates the church. And one way to destroy a church very quickly is by picking off its leaders. And Paul writes that among the plurality of elders that are supposed to be in a local church, there is a certain amount of uh, emphasis that needs to be directed toward those elders that have the duty of preaching and teaching. There is a weightiness that comes with the role of one who opens up the scriptures and expounds upon it for the family of God. In James chapter 3, James actually warns these, uh, these leaders by saying, not many should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that, you, that we will receive a stricter judgment. So it's with that then that Paul says that the elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So what does this double honor mean? It's not just a catchy phrase. It means that there are two ways that, the, that these elders are to be honored. And the first is through respect. It's interesting that Paul qualifies the, the type of elder that needs to be honored. Look again in verse 17 there. It says, the elders who are good leaders... That implies that it's possible for a church to install elders that are not good leaders. Somehow they snuck onto the ballot. Somehow they, they, they weaseled their way into the position. And leadership and the authority that goes with it often corrupts. And there are many people in positional leadership that have no business being there. The elders who do lead well ought to lead wisely and humbly and effectively and faithfully and graciously, and they're to be respected. And how are they to be respected? Well, I think Paul is alluding to how the church speaks about them, uh, how the church receives their counsel and correction, and how the church uh, provides encouragement and prayers for those elders. Uh, the other form of, of, of uh, respect comes in the form of um, compensation. And this is probably more applicable to those elders who are preachers and teachers because that takes the most amount of time and energy. He quotes Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, when he says, Don't muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. And as we read through the Old Testament, it's really easy to come to that verse and say, well, why in the world would God care enough about an ox to put that particular law in the Old Testament? And it makes sense if you're a farmer. Because if you're a farmer and you muzzle the ox and you just work him and work him and work him and don't give him the ability to drink, don't give him the ability to eat, you're going to work him to death. And in the same way, the pastor elder is to be paid fairly for the work that he does. Now, obviously, it's really uncomfortable for me to come up here and, and go through this scripture because I don't want to come off as if I'm trying to justify my job. But as it is, Paul wrote it here, and so I'm good with it. And I can't tell you how much of a joy it is to be the pastor here. Uh, over, the, over the course of seven years, like you guys take care of our family 
in so many wonderful ways. And so there, it is just an absolute joy and a privilege to be on stage. I know Dave would say the same thing, that I've never been in a congregation where I've felt more loved and our family felt more loved. And I know that that is not the case for many pastors out there. I know of some who are hired for part-time as a pastor, and yet they're working 50-plus hours a week. I know of some pastors that work full-time, and they don't even know what retirement is going to look like because the church has never provided them with retirement or given them the means by which they can put money into retirement. So we're to honor these elders and respect and uh, compensation. Now, again, I, I, I realize that our current structure here at Emmanuel is not written for elders, but again, our board of stewards is working hard at what is this going to look like to transition into this biblical model, and that just takes a lot of time. But we should honor elders, especially when they come, because they're going to be worth the wait. But second of all, we need to protect elders. We need to protect them. Uh, it's an unfortunate effect, uh, side effect of leadership, but with leadership often comes opposition. Uh, I haven't seen the statistics, but I would be willing to bet that at least 100% of leaders have suffered some sort of conflict because of the very nature of their leadership role. The vast majority of them have been accused of something that is unfounded, and it doesn't matter if you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or if you're a public school teacher in a small rural district, uh, if you're a leader, you're going to make decisions that are not going to make everybody happy. And the same is true with elders in the local church. And the problem is, is that uh, typically when someone gets upset about something in, in a church, typically it happens in small rural churches, um, instead of dealing with the problem biblically, uh, they will demean the reputation of the pastor. And they'll do it either by a flat-out lie or through gossip, which gets twisted into ridiculousness, or uh, maybe just a, a genuine misunderstanding that gets blown out of proportion. Whatever the case, uh, it is unfortunate that elders will be accused of something at some point, and Paul provides provisions for how to handle accusations in verse 19. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Now, obviously, Paul is taking this out of the Old Testament law uh, in which no one could really be convicted unless there's two or three witnesses to, uh, to do that. And the reason for that is, is because it's very easy for someone to get a bee in their bonnet about something, make an accusation, and then all of a sudden, there are more problems than are supposed to be. However, if there's witnesses, they can corroborate the evidence and, and look for a conviction. But notice that Paul takes this a bit further here. He doesn't say that it takes two or three witnesses in order to convict. He is saying that it takes two or three witnesses to even entertain the discussion. Now, this obviously raises some very serious contemporary questions. What is the church to do if an elder is accused of sexual abuse, especially in the case of a minor. What about domestic abuse? What about other crimes that by their nature lend themselves to a lack of, of, of witnesses or evidence? Uh, let me just say on the outset that many churches, even entire denominations, have been ruined. There's one in particular right now that is Having a, uh, that is close to a split because of 
how they have dealt with sexual abuse accusations. And they've covered up criminal activity of certain individuals in the church, all in the name of biblical fidelity. But further, we have to understand that Jesus did not set up his church to be a CSI. We're not a crime-solving investigative unit. That is one function of the state that's been ordained by God. So when it comes to potential criminal activity, it is not in our purview to investigate such things. For that, we refer to the authorities. And though it might be wise that in the midst of such an investigation that the church would hire an outside Christian firm to also look at the systems that the church would have in place uh, by which we could have done better and need to put more protection in place. We need to be the place that people are cared for, especially for the abused. Now, that's just a side note, but an important one. When it comes to accusations such as pride, maybe spiritual bullying, authoritarianism, slander, I mean, you could fill in the, the, the blank of these uh, leadership um, accusations. In fact, I was even once accused of trying to make a few certain members of my last church uncomfortable simply by the couch that I bought and put in my office. So some of these things can, can just border on the absolute ridiculous. But uh, whatever the case, the church can take care of those who lead the church by being willing to dismiss accusations uh, that have no foundation in them. But what are we to do if there is some teeth in the accusation? What are we to do if um, quite possibly there is some merit to it? That's the third point. We need to seek to restore fallen elders. Uh, this is a, a, a fictitious uh, case study, but imagine with me a, a man named Charles, who had been attending First Church for 20 years, uh, was a well-respected member. He had served in almost every capacity within the church. Uh, he had been an Awana volunteer. He had been an adult Sunday school teacher. He had been a deacon. Uh, he, and, and over five years ago, he was elected to the elder board. He was very well-loved and very well-respected. And his wife was also well-loved and respected. She was a stay-at-home mom of their five children. And whatever uh, extra time she did have, uh, she spent at the church either on the worship team or in the children's ministry. So on the surface, Charles and his wife had this, this model relationship of what a, a church member couple should look like. But one Sunday, to the surprise of everyone, Charles's wife shows up to church, and she's just completely emotional. And some of the, the ladies of the church go to console her, and, and she ends up confessing that Charles had left her the night before for another woman in the church who had also just left her husband. And all the elders, they, they, they get together, and they, they want to go find Charles and see what in the world is going on here. And when they find him, he, he verifies everything. He left his wife, and now he's with this other woman. He no longer loves his wife. He is now in love with this woman. And uh, he'd been seeing her secretly for some time, but now they're going public, and they're going to start going to church at the same church and try to make that work. There are two things that ought to come out of this. Well, two things that can come out of this. The first is that the elders can convince him to repent. 
to turn from that and go back to his wife, seek counseling, resign from the elder board, break it off with this woman, and be restored to the church. But more often than not, when people are caught in these things, they dig their heels in the sand, and they want to justify their, their sin because we just don't understand the situation that they are in. And so Paul puts in provision on how to handle such un unrepentant elders here in order to uh, seek to restore him as well as bring health and healing to the congregation and the victims who are obviously affected by his sin. Verse 20 says, publicly rebuke those who sin so the rest will be afraid. Now, this sounds harsh. But again, recognize what's happening here. This is an elder. This is a leader of the church, a publicly recognized shepherd of the sheep who has publicly fallen into disgrace. And the provisions of Matthew chapter 18, where you go to him privately and you know all those sorts of things, have now been totally exhausted and this man refuses to acknowledge his sin. And in this case, Paul is commanding the church to publicly announce what's going on and rebuke him, which is to sharply condemn him. Most likely, it's in a church congregational meeting. And this would probably entail him being removed from the elder board and the membership role of the church. And the point of this is threefold. One, it helps this man to come to his senses. See, they believe what they have been saying, and this is, this is what the, the Bible tells us to do. The church has been his care network, his support team. And in a way, this is the church publicly caring for him by saying, look, we love you. We can't follow you on the road that you're going. And we want you to walk with us. And second, this is a way of ministering to his, his, his wife in a situation like this. She is a victim of his pride and his selfishness. She is going to need the love and care and support of her church family. And one way is publicly sticking up for her and saying what your husband did was wrong. And we're going to support you in any way that we can in this hard time. Third, notice that it also serves as a warning to other elders to do what Paul said back in chapter 4, verse 16, where he said, pay close attention to yourself, to your life and your teaching Persevere in these things, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And when Paul says, so that the rest will be afraid, he's talking about the elders. This must serve as a warning to let this not happen to them. They must keep a close watch on themselves and on their lives and teaching and there's another thing that, that churches must be diligent against here, and it's what I call the, uh, the good old boy system. It's one in which there's discrimination that's shown among uh, elders for whatever reason. Verse 21, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. See, there is a tendency in churches, especially small churches that are usually run by one or two really powerful families, or small towns, school boards, townships, you can name it, that tend to have this good old boy system. 
in which they will gloss over the problems of those who are on the inside circle, and they will seek to punish as much as possible those who are on the outside of the group. Such good old boy systems need to die, and they need to go away. Paul says here that the living God himself says that we should show no favoritism in this. It creates injustice. It breeds mistrust in the congregation. It is an affront to God who says in Romans that he shows no partiality. I get that in our culture we are adverse to confrontation, unless it's Facebook, and then we'll say whatever we feel like saying on on Facebook. We may see this as uncaring or as unloving or whatever, but this is why we have to see these verses as loving. They're loving to the one who has fallen to restore him. They're loving to the victims to provide justice and care. They're loving to the church whom the elders have been appointed to keep pure. So we need to seek restoration for fallen elders, and we need to seek the purity of the church. And finally, the last thing we need to do is appoint qualified elders. Appoint qualified elders. The church ought to appoint uh, appoint elders, but they ought not to be hasty about it. Many churches, um, especially small churches, are hurting for leaders. That's just how it is. And so what often happens when a a church is uh, hurting for leaders, what happens typically is that they see someone that maybe has some potential, and they'll just thrust them right into a leadership position. Or if they need a quota of a certain group, they just want some warm body to fill a chair on a board, so they will go ahead and pick uh, anybody. And though that's the convenient thing to do, especially in the short term, in the long term, uh, it could be very dangerous for the church. Instead, the church must do the slow and careful work of vetting and growing and nourishing uh, leaders. In verse 22, Paul says, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder. And there are really three reasons for this. Look in verse 22. Uh, He says, and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So the first reason uh, that we should be careful and slow in this is that if there's something that the elders have overlooked or not seen, it's potential that the elders could be complicit in whatever it is going on in this individual's life. When people are judged in the court of public opinion, uh, they typically count other people guilty by association. So if you put a guy on an elder board that's not ready for yet, something that he's got going on, well, the whole elder board then gets blamed for that particular thing. Second, in verse 24, Paul says that though things look good on the surface, there may become a a time in which there are things in this person's life that sort of bubble to the surface. He says some people, uh, their, their sins are obvious preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. In other words, there are some people that you could just know right away. Right now, right now they're not, they're not ready for, for leadership. And then there are some people that you might say, wow, they are ready for leadership, but we still need to take time because let's say a really stressful situation hits them and they just sort of hit the rocks and they exhibit a personality that you never thought you'd, you'd see. 
More positively, verse 25 says the opposite. Some people who are, are, are really good people and their, their, their goodness shows over time. He says in verse 25, Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. So as a church, we, we, we certainly need elders, and we certainly need to appoint them and release them to do the work that God has called them to do. They are worth the wait. And so we are going about the process of slowly looking at what this looks like. You know, in 1979... Sister Sledge, which is like one of the weirdest names for a group, Sister Sledge released a, a, a track that would forever memorialize them. It was a song called We Are Family. It's their, uh, oh yeah, someone gets it. Is that you, Stephanie? Oh yeah, you know that. Everybody knows that song. It's like their only hit that was like really big. And they quantified their, their, their familial relations by saying, I've got all my sisters and me. But I'll tell you what, there's really no family that's quite like the church. It is the church that has been built that transcends flesh and blood. We take care of each other from the womb to the tomb. And one thing that makes us really functional and attractive to outsiders is how we care for each other. So today, as a church, Let's pledge together to take care of its leaders by honoring them, by protecting them, restoring them, or if need be, holding them accountable, and by appointing them to the ministry that God has laid out for that position. Let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Moore, Minnesota. You are welcome to pass this message along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Emmanuel Baptist Church. This message has been made available by the generous supporters of Emmanuel Baptist Church. For additional information about how you can partner with Emmanuel, please visit us at www.emmanuelmora.com. There you will find more free messages and links to ministry opportunities to help you grow in your faith. If you are watching on YouTube, please click the subscribe button to always receive the latest messages. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Baptist Church, Mora, Minnesota. Knowing Christ and making Him known.